Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Alonso Bet. We're your hosts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we have a great episode coming for you guys today. We're going to start off with some current events, a decent amount happening in the sports world over the last couple of days. And then we're going to go into our next statistics that we're teaching you guys. We've gotten a lot of good feedback about this segment, and we're excited to bring the first defensive statistic into the show today when we preview DRS, Defensive Run Saved, and UZR. Finally, we're going to uh, finish it up with our final or our next to final divisional preview, which is the American League Central. And this is a super, super exciting division, guys. Uh, but before we get into all that, Sam, why don't you tell the listeners the latest updates on our social media accounts and our Fangraphs promotion that we're running right now? Yeah, so if you've listened to the last couple episodes we had or uh, have followed us on Twitter at all at the Alonzo Bet, you know that we're doing a Fangraphs ad-free membership giveaway. The idea behind this is that since Fangraphs, the incredible site that we reference a lot on this podcast, has gotten decreased traffic due to the lack of an MLB season so far, the site's struggling a bit, so we want to encourage people to buy memberships to the site to help keep it afloat in this downtime for the baseball season. And because, and what we've done for this giveaway is we've said, if you leave a positive comment on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to us, uh, we're going to randomly choose one of you and give you a year-long ad to the membership. The problem we realize is we actually don't have any way to get in contact with the people who have already been leaving some really nice and great messages on the podcast. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick one of these random uh, comments and post it on our Twitter page. So if you want to win the if you want to win the contest, make sure you're following us on Twitter and you can say, "Hey, that was me," and then we'll have a way to contact you. So remember, follow us at the Alonzo Bet if you want a chance to win the contest. And in any way, if you want a chance to interact with us, whether that's, you know, giving us some thoughts on the, on the last podcast, asking us to cover a new statistic, make sure to follow us at the Alonzo Bet, or you can email us at thealonzobet at gmail.com. All right, and with that, we're going to get right into current events. Unfortunately, at the top of the docket today are three tragic passings in the sports world. The first of those is Hank Steinbrenner, co-owner of the Yankees, dead at age 63, and this is a very, very sad story. Hank, obviously uh, the older brother of primary manager Hal Steinbrenner of the Yankees, and they took over uh, from their father, George Steinbrenner, uh, around 2010-2011, and very sad to see him go. By all accounts, a great guy. Kind of with Hal, led the Yankees away from an era where they were the top spending team in baseball from 1999 to 2013 straight, 14 years in a row, and basically had been throughout their history. Brought them into an era where they've been as low as seven over the last couple years, but have continued to win. That said, Sam, some fans might be a little disappointed that this Yankees team hasn't reached a World Series since 2009, and most of that time has been under the tenure of Howell Hank. Yeah, I will say, you know, as a guy that grew up in New York, of course, I was a Mets fan, but I knew plenty of Yankees fans. The Steinbrenners are a family that's held in very high regard among New York. I know there are a lot of people sad about, about Hank's passing, but I, I think you make a good point in that after George Steinbrenner died, the identity of the Yankees as an organization really shifted a bit. You know, we remember when we were kids, the Yankees were sort of this evil empire that would just outspend every team to get every free agent they wanted. 
And now the Yankees have actually been one of the leading franchises at the forefront of analytics and finding value in player development and things like that. So it's really like a, a huge shift in the, in the Yankees franchise, and they've done an incredible job to sort of take this old way of sort of managing a team into this new, this new way of managing teams and staying a competitive team through the entire year. Right. So as you said, like, I understand that Yankees fans are upset that they haven't won since 2009. Like, th- this is a team that just has won, like, one out of every four World Series, basically. So obviously, with that comes insanely high expectations. But I think the Yankees are actually a bit unlucky to have never made a yeah. World Series over the past decade. They've really been, had competitive teams every year. Basically. Right, they've lost in the ALCS three times. Um, and they've made the playoffs five. So uh, they definitely, you know, played very well. Uh, but, of course, it hasn't been the thing that the Yankees fans expect, which is a World Series. That said, I think we both agree that this, that Steinbrenner group has done an amazing job. Hank, a very well-respected, very well-regarded guy in the baseball world. And, uh, you know, our condolences to his family and those who are hurting from his passing. Again, Hank Steinbrenner dead at 63 this week. Um, off the top, a couple more passings, and, and we're very sorry to report. Uh, Tavares Jackson, longtime NFL quarterback, about 10 seasons in the league. I believe he got some time backing up Russell Wilson in the Super Bowl against the Broncos. Yeah, and you don't see many uh, backup quarterbacks actually coming into Super Bowl games outside of you know, Nick Foles actually starting. At the yeah, right, right. You know, usually you, you don't really want to give up minutes in the Super Bowl, but that game was an absolute it was. Um, and he was a coach at Texas A&M, I believe, or uh, a similar school. And, you know, it's just sad to see a young athlete go like this before his time. So, I, you know, we're going to say it a couple more times here, but condolences to his family and anybody who is uh, hurting from his passing. Tavares Jackson, unfortunately, passed away this week uh, in an unfortunate accident. Yeah, and one, one final uh, passing we wanted to alert you guys to, and again, we don't want to make this like a really sound right, podcast right. every week. This is, not, think, a, this is not, yeah. not an audio obituary. Yeah, here, I think it's important, though, to, to celebrate people who are instrumental in the sports world when they, when they do pass. And, and one other person I want to draw your guys' attention to is a guy who's really legendary in the New York sports community, and that's Anthony Kousey, who recently passed away due to complications of the coronavirus at 48. And Anthony Kelsey is a guy who has been a, a sports photographer for the New York Post for the better part of the last couple of decades. And he's taken some of the most iconic photos in New York sports, mm-hmm. whether it's of Derek Jeter or Mariano Rivera or a lot of Mets players, Knicks players, Giants players, Jets players. Like he's really, a lot of pictures you've seen of, of the New York sports scene that have been taken by him are really sad passing. And, you know, by all accounts, just an incredible guy. Yep. All of his colleagues spoke so highly of him. So that's a really sad development in, in the current coronavirus pandemic. And our condolences go out to the to the Kelsey family and everyone who's grieving in the New York sports community. That's right. Um, and, you know, now that we're beyond some of that somber news, we'll get into uh, some additional news. The first one, and I think both of these are fun, uh, Steve Pierce has kind of announced that he's quote-unquote unofficially retired, but I think this is effectively his retirement from baseball. And Steve Pierce, uh, if we all remember, was the 2018 World Series MVP. Yeah, you know, if that's that's someone who, like, if in 10 years you told someone, hey, who was the 2018 World right. Series MVP for the Boston Red Sox? 
they would probably guess like 15 people before they oh, see definitely. maybe 25 definitely yeah and that's like a great sparkle answer that's when you're doing a sparkle and you can't get one right and then yeah. it ends and you're like oh of course steve pierce won the 2018 world series mvp but uh you know he was a grinder he was a guy who for the first basically seven years of his career had a zero or slightly negative war yeah he's a replacement level player the type of guy who is lucky to have stayed in the league that long. exactly like, was really on the fringes of the league for a long time and then in 2014 he just suddenly put up an 161 wrc plus in 102 games 61 yeah. percent better than the rest of the league at a four and a half war which makes him basically all-star level in, in, like, half a season. Like, if he had done that for a full season, he might have won the MVP. Yeah, exactly. He's, like, on pace, basically, for nine more. Um, so this is just a fun guy. Uh, everybody who played with him, you know, only has the best things to say about him. Great clubhouse presence. Fun veteran bat off of the uh, bench for a lot of teams over the last number of years. And uh, congratulations on your retirement. Uh, we hope that you find a lot of greens out there a lot of golf rounds because i guess that's what all baseball players yeah. do when they retire so so some other fun news in the sports world that we thought we might bring up is for those of you who are really craving some baseball right now and want to watch some mlb games but can't because of the the pandemic one thing you might be able to tune into is the mlb the show players league so what this is is each team in the league has a single player on their team representing them as their mlb the show player and they're actually just having a league. So there are 30 players from the league who are playing an MLB The Show league. Uh, one you know, from each team. Yeah, one yeah. from each team. And, you know, they have their divisions. They're playing everyone. And if you want to watch these matchups, they happen on all these players' individual Twitch channels uh, a few nights a week. It's been a lot of fun to, to follow. You know, for some fun, I'm just going to read out some notable players in the standings. Yeah. Joey Gallo is an absolute monster. He's 8 and 0. Oh. <laughs> no, you know, he's just crushing his And I think he's hit something like six home runs with himself. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like so if anyone's going to smash home runs in the show, it's going to be Joey Gallo. I love that. Bo Bichette, you know, a possible breakout rookie star this year, 7 and 1. On the other side, Eduardo Rodriguez, a paltry 1 and 7. Yeah. The great Jeff McNeil doing my Mets Assad with a 6 and 2. John Duplantier is not doing quite as well for the Diamondbacks. Yeah, He's well, as long as John holds it down to the bullpen this year, I don't care what he does in the show. But, you know, we've had a lot of fun sort of watching some of these matchups, following it on Twitter. The players are narrating their actual playing, so you get, get a sort of a glimpse into the player's personality. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great way to sort of connect MLB fans to right. players while we can't watch the games, and I've had a lot of fun. And a lot of these guys are friends, too. You know, there's, I think, maybe the opening match was something like Amir Garrett against Blake Snell, um, or it may not have been the opening match, but they've played each other, and they're, like, good friends. So to, like, hear them banter on screen and, like, get frustrated while they're giving up dingers makes you feel like you're sitting with your friend playing the show, which is great in and of itself, except for that these guys are major league players who you love watching, and then they just go out and get to play, so... Definitely check it out if you have a chance. Like, obviously, you know, you may not sit and watch a whole game, but even if you just tune in for a couple innings, like, these guys are making but the, the games are only three innings, I believe. So it's oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's true. So you may be able to see a full one. Um, all right, well, with that, we're going to move into our advanced stats for the day. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're moving into defense. 
So we started with very general projections, which are, I think, pretty well advanced, went into some hitter projections that are a very good explanation for what they claim to do in WRC+. But then we went into some pitcher projections in fielding independent pitching and explained why those are maybe lacking a little bit. Now we're going to go to some fielding advanced metrics, which are defensive run save, DRS, and ultimate zone rating, UZR. And these two are essentially the same with one very minor difference that we'll explain to you. Um, but Sam, why don't you go into exactly what these stats do, how they quantify player value, and how we should be looking at these stats when we want to evaluate players. Sure. So, so one quick thing to note about these two stats is they're both used as inputs to different war calculations. So wins above replacement, we talked about that in episode two, sort of an all-encompassing value stat for players. So Fangraph's war uses ultimate zone rating, UZR, to sort of measure the defensive value of players. And Baseball Reference War, B-War, uses defensive run save, DRS, to measure the defensive value of players. And what both of these stats basically do is they try to measure, try to assign a quantitative amount of runs saved or runs lost versus average by different defensive players at their positions. And the way they do that is they look at sort of the last few years of batting ball data and see that a ball hit at this velocity to this zone on the field would on average be a hit a certain percentage of the time. So let's say a guy hits a ball at a certain velocity on a line drive to the to sort of right center field. And they'll look at past data and say, well, that's going to be a hit 70% of the time. And now the center fielder might catch that ball or not. So let's say he did catch it. That was a hard play. It's only made 30% of the time. So they might say, on average, a hit to that part of the field is worth 0.7 runs. So this fielder saved his team 0.7%, sorry, 0.7, which is the amount of the probability that the play is not made times 0.7 runs. So he saved his team about half a run by making that play. Whereas if he hadn't made the play, he would have cost his team 30% times 0.7 runs. And sort of they add this up for every play that happens during the season and say this player was this many runs above average or below average um, uh, at his position. But that's actually a key point, Sam. You said they look at all the plays that happen over a season. And that's actually only what DRS or defensive run saved does. And that goes into the minor difference here. So as Sam mentioned... What both of these statistics do is they look at a batted ball. They look at a ball that's gone into the field of play, and they look at things like exit velocity and a launch angle, where it landed on the field, and they use those numbers to predict how likely it is that a player, a defensive player, would make a play and get an out on that batted ball. Well, batted balls change a lot, and so these two statistics address that problem in different ways. DRS groups all batted balls by season. So to make their statistic, they look at all the batted balls from the 2017, 2018, 2019 seasons respectively. But UZR actually uses what's called a rolling average, which is a technique where they use an average over a fixed time frame. So with each new game played, that average changes a little bit because that new game goes into the average 
and the last game that they're counting falls out of the average. And, and this rolling average is done over more than a single season. So it's usually done over a few seasons, something like three or four That's seasons. right. And so if we're looking at relative benefits of these two and how to kind of distinguish between these two, because they are truly very similar. They're very similar. They use the same inputs, which is... Uh, sort of tracking data from Baseball Info Solutions, right. which sort of tracks every play and at bat that happens over a season. So they have the same inputs, and they have the same philosophy for how to grade fielders. They're just sort of very minor sort of structural differences. Right. It's really just a, you know, a statistical difference that they have. Um, and so I guess one thing to say is that if you're trying to determine a player's defensive value, either of these statistics would give you some idea. But they will differ wildly on some players, and so we're just trying to give you a way to analyze that. So for UZR, they look at multiple seasons. DRS looks at one season, and the reason these are valuable, UZR... Um, to, be, to be clear, though, UZR, when you read the UZR for a player in a single season, it is only for events in that season. Yes, I'm sorry. But they're, but they're normalizing it to sort of batted ball events over the last few right. years. Right. Yeah. They're... Counting how probable it is that a player makes a play, looking at all batted balls from multiple seasons that have happened. Um, and that is valuable because what we've seen since advanced statistics have come out is that while it may only take a season or a half a season for some hitting or pitching statistics to settle down, basically, to not have a lot of noise and to be very reliable so we can really trust them. Um, for defense, it looks like it takes about three seasons for the noise to settle down, and for you to have a really solid confidence. So when you're looking at a defensive player's DRS or UZR, you should actually look in like roughly three-season blocks to get a good idea yeah. of what they're and, really worth. And I think a good way to think about that is... Oh, and one maybe before I, before I go into that, one thing to maybe mention is what is a good or an elite DRS or UZR? And what these typically are... are if you're saving something like 15 runs above average in a season at a position, you're really a gold glove caliber defender at that position, you know? And then as you're at about saving 10, you're like a very, very good defender, very above average. And then similarly, if you're sort of minus 10 or minus 15, you're a terrible defender at that position. But then let's talk about sort of uh, like what we can think about in a three-year sample. So let's say there's one player that has... Uh, minus one runs above average in one of these stats in one year, then zero the next year, then plus one the next year. You would sort of view them as an average fielder. They have zero runs above average in the stat over a three-year sample, and they've been close to zero every year. Well, there could be another player that sort of goes minus seven, then plus eight, then minus one. And you might say, hey, well, they were a kind of a bad fielder, then they were a good fielder, then they were an average fielder. Well, no, they were also basically the, an average right. fielder over a three-year sample. So that's what we mean when we say that these stats can be noisy on a year-to-year -year basis. And so, you know, Sam kind of gets to the heart of that. Um, it takes many years for it to normalize, and that makes sense why UZR then uses these larger buckets, basically, to group batted balls together. But DRS uses a season-by-season -season approach, and on its face, that may seem ridiculous. But when you think about it, the baseball itself has changed so much year to year over the last few years that you kind of get the feeling maybe DRS is onto something because if one year the ball is traveling totally differently, so a given set of exit velocity and 
uh, launch angles produce different results than a previous year, then you have to group them year by year because the ball may be the di biggest difference maker. I don't actually know the right answer to this. I think they each tell you something about uh, other fielders in the league. The difference between the two tells you about other fielders in the league. It tells you about the change in baseballs. But the values themselves, if you look over a three-year period, will generally normalize. There are some small outliers, but generally you won't have an issue looking over about that three-year stretch. And, and there's one thing to emphasize that's sort of an offshoot of what we've talked about here, and that's that uh, DRS is sort of inherently a more aggressive stat than UZR. Since it's based on sort of single-year data, you're going to see more outliers. You'll see a guy saving a lot of runs. You're losing a lot of runs for his team in a single season, whereas you'll sort of see less big numbers out of UZR. Right. So DRS will often be more aggressive with what they think about good and bad fielders. And as an example of that, I thought it might be a fun game to look at sort of what DRS and UZR have seen as the best and worst fielders over the last decade. So if you look at the worst fielders of the last decade, Ricky Weeks is the worst fielder by DRS at minus 82 runs below average. And Dexter Fowler is the worst fielder by UZR at minus 46 runs below average. And Dexter Fowler actually surprised me. I don't usually think of him as like a terrible fielder, although maybe he's, he's been sort of not so good for a lot of years now. But something, you know, that you see here is that DRS sort of sees the worst fielder as being much worse than UZR sees the worst fielder at. Exactly. And D DRS and UZR also actually both think the same guy was the best fielder for the last decade. And that's maybe not surprising to a lot of people who have followed baseball over the last, you know, eight or ten years. And that's Andrelton Simmons, the guy's an absolute <laughs> maestro at shortstop. If you've uh, never seen Andrelton Simmons' defensive highlights, just go on YouTube Type in Anderson Simmons' defensive highlights. You'll probably be entertained for the next three hours. Oh, definitely. Like, he's, he's an animal. He's incredible. He's an animal at shortstop. And I, I think that this actually speaks to the difference in values. Because, like, DRS at 193. And th there's also, like, a crazy Kevin Kiermeyer DRS. I think he puts up 170 or something one year. And what this... Four in a single year. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, over 40 in a yeah. single year, right. Yeah. And what this says, basically, is that these guys not only were just super good for that season, but again, DRS groups by batted balls in a season, and when the ball starts to change or when player approach at the plate starts to change, it takes a while for managers to fully catch on and trust that they can put their fielders in certain positions. But truly tremendous fielders, such as Andrelton Simmons and Kevin Kiermeyer know the game so well, they watch so much tape, they study the at-bats and chronologue them in their brain so well that they are positioned so much better than the average fielder before managers catch on that in a single season, they can steal 40 runs. Whereas the next best guy who may be close to as good a fielder, but not as smart in the field, you know, they could be as fast, they could be as good with the glove, but not as smart, not as quick on the break and not as well positioned, may only save you know, 15 runs and be a great fielder, but not even compare to a 40-run season in DRS or UZR. But, yeah, but again, like 40, 40 runs is like, you know, the best best fielding season of a decade. Yeah. Something like that is usually uncommon. But, and one thing to mention about that is, well, Andrewson Simmons is 193 runs above average by DRS. He's only 112 runs above average by UZR, which, again, is similarly elite. 
But the difference is about eight wins above replacement. Right. Uh, when on average you can convert 10, 10 runs to a single win. And we're talking about UCR and DRS seeing basically a single Mike Trout season as the difference between Anderson Simmons fielding over the last right. decade. It's exactly. a huge difference. Exactly. And, you know, before we move on to our AL Central season preview, there's one more thing I want to emphasize about these defensive stats, which is, you know, they are quite noisy, but why are they better than doing something like fielding percentage or errors? Great question. Great and, question. And, and the reason for that is that basically fielding percentage and errors basically miss what most of fielding is, and that's the ability to get to a ball as opposed to the ability to make a play when you're already at the ball. So you might imagine that like a guy hits a grounder into the hole, and a bad shortstop doesn't even touch that grounder. It's just a single through the middle. Well, as Angleton Simmons might get to that ball, and then let's say he made a bad throw first. Well, he'd be charged for an error, but really he's being punished for being an amazing fielder right. and being able to get to that ball in the first place. Right. So that's why fielding percentage and errors are really not the best way to evaluate fielders, and you really need to look at sort of how they're how well they're turning batted balls into outs, because that's a fielder's job. And that's not to say, just so our viewers don't get confused here, DRS and UZR take errors and fielding percentage into account. They look at those numbers. They just don't stop there. They say, well, that tells part of the story. It tells you how well guys converted balls they got to into outs. But it says, how well did you get to a ball? Who else could have gotten to that ball? And how valuable is it that you put your glove on that ball? So this is a more complete stat. Um, this, I think, you know, is one of the most exciting areas that statistics are going to improve as StatCast gets better, as BIS gets better. I think that defensive statistics will improve quickly, and I'm excited to see where they go from here because it's going to be super, super exciting. Yeah, and there's some really fun work being done by uh, Baseball Savant using StatCast data. Yep. They have a new defensive stat called Outs Above Average, and part of what StatCast data allows you to do is really understand how the positioning of fielders affects their ability to make players because that's something with all the shifts in baseball now so that important. both UZR and DRS have a hard time dealing with. So I'm really excited about the direction of some of these uh, these defensive stats using StatCast data. We're definitely going to talk about them in future episodes. But for now, let's move on to this episode's division preview, and that's the AL Central. So tell me what you think about this division, Aaron. This is a super fun division to call this year. So we have a bunch of different kinds of teams in here. We have a surging powerhouse in the Twins. We have two teams, uh, the White Sox and the Indians, who are super evenly matched on different ends of their like winning cycle. Like The Indians are coming down. The White Sox are coming up. It's yeah. really cool to watch. And then you have two teams who are struggling but you know, either trying to compete respectively or building a farm system. So something to watch in every spot here. But I will say, as I made my predictions, before I tell you what they are, the two and three spots between the Indians and the White Sox are as close as two teams fighting for positional dominance in baseball are today. There I, is no other division that has a two and three as close. I I really agonized over over who to put two and who to put three out yeah. of those two. So I, I'd agree. So, Sam, I'll tell you who I have, then you can tell me who you have. I have Twins. I think you probably do, too. That is also my number one. And then I have Indians, White Sox. So I went the other way. I went White Sox. Okay. So, and but, again, but again, I think they're really close. Right, and, I think And we can close. discuss sort of why we made the decisions we did in putting one above. Right, what kind of yeah. gives the edge. And then to round it out, I have Royals, Tigers. Yeah, and I'm the same, as, okay. I, as I assume you do. 
So then, obviously, we'll start with the Twins here. For me, for the Twins, you know, as a strength, I have their lineup. I think that it's really, really strong this year. You know, they just got a ton of guys who can really hit. They went out and got Donaldson. Obviously, that's a massive signing for them. And then they add that to a core that already contains Kepler, Jorge Polanco, Nelson Cruz, Miguel Sano, Eddie Rosario, Mitch Garver. This team from top to bottom does it. They have depth. They have bench players who are solid and serviceable pieces. And, uh, you know, I really like what they've done here. The lineup's really amazing. And, you know, one one signing that I I think really went under the radar this offseason was the Josh Donaldson signing. I mean, this is a guy who is not that far removed from being an MVP. He had a down year in 2018, but then sort of had this prove-it deal with the Braves in 2019. And that turned out to be one of basically the best signings of the oh, yeah. of the 2019 offseason, where Donaldson basically put up a 5 war for the Braves, yep. was back to his all-star levels. And I think the Twins really got good value in being able to sign him. I think he's going to be one of the best players on their team this year. I mean, and, and that's that's saying a lot considering how good their team was last year. Absolutely. And I'm looking at Josh Donaldson's stats from last year. Is that the quietest 37 home runs in history? Like he tied his career high in or sorry, he tied his second career high in homers last season. But like no one was talking about him being a prolific masher and I get that everybody hit homers Jorge Soler, a guy we'll talk about later in the episode, had 45 last year. So what does it say to Donaldson at 37? But still, like, that's really impressive. I think when you talk about value, though, Sam, the Twins got value for this year and maybe next. But don't forget, they signed him for four years. And at this point in his career, when he's straight up pushing 34 years old, I don't think you can expect much out of him in ages 36. 38, 36, you know, once you get there as a hitter like he is, he's always been a good fielder, and I, you can't really do that at the hot corner for that much longer. I, I don't know if they really got value throughout the lifetime of the contract. But I think that brings up a good point as to, like, what the Twins' window is right now. And I think they sort of arrived as a contender before anyone expected last yeah, season. Right. And no, now, two seasons ago. They really contended two seasons ago. Yeah, but they, they sort of like really I, I don't think anyone expected them to just run away with the NL sorry, with the AL Central as they did last year. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And, and I guess what what Oh I, and I'm sorry, they did not. It was three seasons ago when they were in yeah. the uh, in the uh wild card. Last year they actually finished or two thousand eighteen they finished under five hundred, so yeah. I apologize for but, that. But but actually what I actually want to emphasize is that they've sort of identified the the pieces they have now as pieces that they can sort of make a run at a World Series title with. And I really like that they sort of said, hey, we have some good pieces. Let's just go for it. So they got Donaldson. I like that they gave Jake Ogarisi the qualifying offer because, you know, and maybe you disagree with me with this, about this, but, like, if there's, if there's a weakness to the Twins, it's probably some pitching depth. Well, yeah, I mean, that's obviously what I have as their weakness, too. And I don't think it's terribly bad, but it raises the question, is this a team that can win a World Series? Is this a team that can really fight in the playoffs? Because when you get to the back end of their rotation, you know, even let's start at two. So Jose Barrios, I really like. I think he's poised for another step forward this year. But Jake Odorizzi was, like, 
he was good last year, you know, but part of that was his strikeout rate, which jumped to 9.4, but everybody is doing that. You know, Jake Odorizzi in the past, he's just following the trend. Jake Odorizzi in the past has been a 7-8 strikeout per 9 pitcher. He jumps to 9.5 with everybody else in the league. But but I, I love the qualifying offer they gave him. Yeah, like, but, if, yeah. If you're getting a year of what, uh, like, Odorizzi was very good last oh, year. Yeah. If you're giving him a chance to do that again at sort of a one-year commitment, I love that now for Twins. But again, you know, that's not really my concern. My concern is in the Kenta Maeda's, the Homer Bailey's, and then whoever you're putting at five. You know, if I think they're smart, they shouldn't even really throw Rich Hill during the season. They need him for the playoffs. But but I, I'm glad you brought up Rich Hill because that's exactly the type of move that a team like the Twins should be making. He's the type of high upside guy that, yeah, he has some health yeah, problems. Right. But when he's healthy, he can just absolutely shut down some incredible lineups. Like he, he's the type of guy that you can have throw five innings in a high octane playoff environment and get it done for you. So that's the type of moves that a team that is already a contender but is trying to add the pieces necessary to make noise in the playoffs needs to make. Yeah, and I actually agree with that. So you, I guess when you phrase it that way. Your idea of like uh, rotation construction is very poignant. And again, I'm not, you know, this is a good team. But for me, I think if they're using Rich Hill correctly, he maybe throws 80 innings during the season. They throw him very, very yeah, seldomly sure. during the season, and they save him for the playoffs because he's a guy who, even at 40 years old, he's 40 if you can believe it, is going to go into these games. And he really wasn't. Good until he was 36. No, which is, crazy. which is absolutely crazy. I met him when I was a very young kid playing Little League Baseball in Arizona because we had a coach who was in the Cubs organization with him. And, you know, I'm old now, and he's still playing baseball. It's crazy. But, you know, so they get 80 innings out of him. So the question becomes, who's eating all those starter innings? And that means they need Kent Maeda, Homer Bailey, and Julius Chassin, really, to come through in the clutch. And... And I guess of, Pineda will still have to serve some PED suspension games in the shortened season. Right. It's I'm possible actually, that Pineda doesn't get to play this season because for a suspension, that's the type of thing I could see MLB saying, we're playing 80 games, but you have an 82-game suspension, so sorry. I, I think I saw something that uh, his suspension will sort of be prorated to the season. Interesting. Uh, but but, I, but don't quote me on that, but I think I read that. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah, so there's some questions at the back end. And then their bullpen also, like... Taylor Rogers was good last year, but Taylor Rogers could be not out of baseball, but he definitely could not be a closer by the end of the season. Like that's the way the closer carousel goes. And he was a guy who was great last year, but kind of came out of nowhere. He's got a veteran breathing down his neck in Sergio Romo. And if he starts the season shaky, like a lot of closers do sometimes, because closing is so hard. I don't know, man. Like he may not. And you may not be closing for the rest of the year. So I do have some questions, but they are a fun team. Um, I'm definitely excited yeah. to see a lot I of players. I think they're, they're the clearly best team in, in the oh, yeah. Central. Like, I, I'd, be, I'd be pretty surprised if they don't win the division. Yeah, I'd be surprised. I mean, obviously the short season is going to change some things. But, like, I, I think they're definitely the best team in the division. But I actually think there's only one other team in this division who could win it. And that's my number two. It's the Cleveland Indians. And I think that... Yes. You know, when you look at the Indians and the White Sox, who we'll go into in a second here, um, the, they're very evenly matched. And the White Sox may even have a slightly stronger rotation. 
But the Indians have the type of star power and the type of experience in Francona, their manager, Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez, Carlos Santana, even a guy like Cesar Hernandez, Shane Bieber, Mike Clevenger, Carlos Carrasco, and a bullpen that, I don't know, if any other team could sneak into the win, it's the Indians. And it's that type of feeling that they could win the division that made me put them second because I didn't feel it for the White Sox. Well, well, let's go into the Indians now then because you already covered, covered a lot of them. So I agree, Lindor, Ramirez... Clevenger and Bieber, all of those guys are probably better than anyone on the White Sox. And I think those are all the types of guys that I wouldn't be surprised if they won MVP or Cy Young this season. Yeah. And actually, my player to watch is Mike Clevenger. And and I just want to go on a little tangent to talk about how good this guy is. Because I think it's not really appreciated what an ace he's become. But of the pitchers who threw 120-plus innings last year... And Clevenger was hurt a bit, so I think he only threw around 120 innings. We talked about fielding independent pitching in the last episode. Mike Clevenger was literally second in the league last year to Max Scherzer. That means he was ahead of guys in fifth, like Garrett Cole, Jacob DeGrom, the GOAT, Steven Strasburg, Justin Verlander, I mean, Walker Bueller. These are the types of guys that we're saying are the top five to ten pitchers in baseball. And Mike Clevenger had a better fifth than them last year. So I think it's start time to start talking about Mike Clevenger in these guys' company and really talk about him as a top 10 pitcher in the league. And that's another thing that maybe it's time to bring about, like, it, that it's worth talking about with the, with the Cleveland Indians is maybe you look at their rotation and you say, you know, it's just Bieber, Clevenger, and Carrasco, and after that it's not much. Right. But this is an organization that has just churned out pitching talent from nothing Really, for years right now, I mean, it's Bieber, Clevenger, Carrasco. It's also Corey Kluber. Right. It's yeah, also it came Trevor, from nowhere. It came from nowhere. It's also Trevor Bauer, who is uh, still a pretty good prospect. But then there's also came from the D-backs. Trevor know, Bauer was an original yeah. diamond. There's also Danny Salazar to bring up. I mean, th- this place is a pitching factory. So while it really seems like their their staff is top heavy, I wouldn't be shocked to see Aaron Savale or Zach Plesac like just throw together a really good season because, like, it's just I'm accustomed to it happening in Cleveland. And that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, I'm actually, even though their starting rotation is, like, not great, and when you compare it to the Twins, it's definitely worse than the Twins, but I actually like it more than the Twins because you have to put it in the context of the organization. And this is an organization who finds a way to churn out great pitchers every year no matter who they are. And that's something I trust, what I don't trust. Because what I haven't seen over the last number of years with the Indians is I don't trust their outfield. Their outfield is abysmal. Yeah, and and, you know, you're the one that has them in second. I have them in third. And, like, the reason I have them in third is they're literally going to be starting Domingo Santana, Tyler Naquin, and Oscar Mercado as a starting outfield. Yeah. Like, how does a team like that contend for for the wild card? Yeah, and, and, like, how do you defend doing that, like, having that lineup when you have Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor, and then, like, this amazing ability to develop pitchers from nothing? It, well, it's just organizational negligence. I mean, the answer as to how you defend it is you say, oh, I'm sorry I play in Cleveland, right? Like, they just don't have money that other teams do. But this is very bad. You know, they... 
what they gave up for Jake Bowers, they definitely could have gotten a more serviceable outfielder at his age. Because don't forget, they got him last year when he was still like a pretty high prospect. And I, I agree. Their outfield is absolutely brutal. And my player to watch is Fran Mill Reyes, who's their oh, DH. I, I'm a huge fan of him. Oh, he's so sick. He's singing in the Padres dugout. He's hitting absolute taters. And... I, I, I do think his player profile is maybe a bit questionable, but like, oh, yeah. I, he's a really fun player. Like, he just smokes the ball. Yeah, he's super fun to watch. Uh, he's even got, like, a bit of a cannon, although it's all over the place. He's got a little bit of a Willie Mo Pena in him. But he's, he's basically going to always DH, right? Yeah, he'll basically yeah. always DH for them. Um, but, you know, their outfield's bad. I think they can get away with it. Uh, it's so hard for me to say because... Normally, when like an outfield is bad, you're like, oh my god, outfield needs homers, it needs stump, blah, blah, blah. But they feel good, whatever. The Indians outfield does not pick the ball up that well. They don't hit the ball well at all. So they're a huge, huge negative. But I think the rest of their lineup's enough to compensate. I think their pitchers are enough to compensate. They've done it this way forever. And the way that I kind of justified it to myself, Sam was that if these are their, let's say, six, seven, eight hitters, let's say they have a one worst hitter somewhere in the lineup, let's pretend they're a National League team. Even if these are their six, seven, eight hitters, to have Domingo Santana six, Oscar Mercado seven, and Tyler Naquin eight would not kill a team. And when you go to the White Sox, which is the next team we want to talk about here, yes, they're maybe a little deeper. You know, they have a six, seven, eight that's looking a lot more like Nick Madrigal, Nomar Garcia's, Lurie Garcia, or Tim Anderson, something like that. I mean, there's six, seven, eight. I mean, like, could could include Jose Abreu or Edwin Encarnacion. Like, these are just... No. No, you know for sure, because I know what you're doing to do that, because I'm doing the same thing. You're looking at the Fangraphs, like, uh, batter's page, which is sort of by war. Encarnacion and Abreu will never hit outside of three to six. Well, then, like, but then, like, Luis Robert's your seven hitter. Like, yeah, Luis Robert could be in your seven, but I think that's perfect. So now you're but, comparing but, Luis Robert and Oscar Mercado. Luis Robert is a much, much better player, but he's young and unproven. And if your key edge over another team is Luis Robert versus Oscar Mercado, that's not enough for you to usurp them in the standings. Yeah, but okay, so I, I guess where I want to draw a difference, though, is like, I think the White Sox are just a much, much deeper team. There's much more talent in that lineup than, than the Indians. And you might say, well, Ramirez and Lindor are like, you know, just a step above everyone else. But there's one guy that the White Sox signed, and that's Yasmani Grandal, and that's a guy who I think is the best catcher in baseball. I think you can give a reasonable argument for JT Realmuto. I think I would actually but, give that argument. But, but, but Grandal's a guy who is a pretty good hitter, and the value he... Uh, uh, provides behind the plate as an incredible pitch framer. And we'll talk about hashing framing in sort of a future stat corners episode. I think that's a really interesting statistic to talk about. But he's a guy that just provides so much value behind the dish in having a pretty good bat and incredible framing skills that he's a guy that's going to provide nearly as much value as a guy like Lindor or Ramirez. And then you start comparing the, the, the talent going down the lineup. There's a guy in Moncada. There's Luis Robert, there's Eloy Jimenez, there's Tim Anderson, there's Edwin Encarnacion, there's Jose Abreu, there's Nick Madrigal. There's all of these really promising young players and really good veteran bats 
that I think just provides way more depth and way more talent in the lineup than, than the Indians. And that's what I think the difference is here. Yeah, the best players on the Indians are better than the best player on the White Sox. But, like, the White Sox have way more talent to go to in that lineup. I'm actually glad that this happened, Sam, because I've been talking depth, depth, depth for so many episodes here. Finally, you make the depth argument, and I agree with you. I think the White Sox are deeper. You know, they have a bunch of guys projected to beat one war on, in their lineup. But in this instance, I don't think it's lineup depth that makes the difference. I think when you go to their pitching, we just talked about how you can't rule Indians like Aaron Savale, and you can't rule Indians like Carlos Carrasco or Zach Plezak out of the equation. But for the White Sox, you have Dallas Keiko and Lucas Giolito. Lucas Giolito, we don't know what we're getting out of him this season yet. Yeah, although I will note that he was like an all-star level pitcher last year. Oh, yes, absolutely. And we could get that or better this year. He has the stuff. He has the pedigree to do it. But we don't know for sure. But then once you go beyond those two guys, well, Ronaldo Lopez, Dylan Cease, Michael Kopech, Gio Gonzalez, and Carlos Rodon, sure, all those guys are options. But outside of Kopech, I don't really know if any of those are good pitchers anymore. Yeah, well, K- Kopech's my player to watch, and I think he's he's an interesting guy to talk about because this is a guy who's a 2014 first-round pick. He feels like a prospect that's been around forever. Right. You know, came to the White Sox in the Chris Sale trade. But there's something to remember about this guy is that he's still only 23. He was a consensus top 10 prospect in the 2018 season before he went down with Tommy Conner surgery. And, you know, he came up briefly, didn't have a great results. I think he had over a 5 ERA, but it was only in 14 innings. And if you looked at his stuff, it certainly looked like it played up the major league level. Right. And looked like a guy that was ready to be a really good pitcher in this league. And I think if he comes back from this Tommy John surgery this season and is able to sort of live up to the expectations we had of him beforehand, then suddenly you started looking at this White Sox uh, rotation as much more favorable, maybe even comparable to the top three in the Indians rotation if you sort of gave like Giolito, Keuchel, and, yeah. and, and a good Michael Kopech. And suddenly I, I like the depth even more in the White Sox rotation. I mean, we talked about Rich Hill as sort of a veteran arm that could just throw five incredible innings. Gio Gonzalez is another one out there. Yeah, you know, no, I, no, no, but Gio got... Okay, okay. I, I, I just have so many problems with this. I mean, Gio, Gio Gonzalez is not as good as Rich Thank Hill. you, I, thank I, you. I don't mean to make that comparison. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So that's my first one. But my second one is your your plan here relies on Keuchel, Giolito, and Michael Kopech kind of becoming stars. The idea that Michael Kopech could be a good three a surpassable three to Carlos Carrasco in the league this year is a possible but very long shot scenario. So if you're using all your goodwill on those three guys pitching at their highest potential this year, because Keiko's old, I like him. Giolito's unproven, I like him. And Kopech is super young, but I like him. And but, coming back from Tommy Jones. Right, but if you're going to say all those three guys are going to shove, I mean, that uses most of your goodwill. That means that for the White Sox to win this division or to finish in second place, they either need to be the luckiest team of all time, or no, basically, or they just need. But, you, but like the Indians aren't that good. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Sorry, they're not that good. But I just mean if you think that this rotation one through five is going to be extremely serviceable, 
they either need to be very, very lucky or they need to bring some guys out of nowhere, which again is just basically being lucky. Or their, you know, lineup needs to hit at a caliber that picks up the bottom of their rotation. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. It's I, close. It's I close. sincerely think the lineup's much better than the Indians lineup, despite the Indians having the door in the mirror. It's like I, I really don't think there's. I mean, Carl Santana's good, but like outside of those three, like I don't love that many. Like, like we're talking about Ray, like Framil Reyes is like sort of having to be like a monster in the lineup. But, yeah, absolutely, and and I agree with you. Um, but I think that that's kind of where our disagreement comes to. So to kind of sum up the two and three debate here, I feel that the Indians have the type of star power and organizational structure to push a team that on paper maybe falls a little bit below the White Sox um, into the playoffs uh, in a wild card spot or at least into the two spot. And Sam believes that the young talent, the lineup depth, and the pitching upside that the White Sox have is enough to overtake some of the glaring holes that the Indians present in their lineup. And it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out this year. Uh, Hopefully we will get to see that with the season coming underway here. Um, So now I think let's move on to the bottom of the division here. Uh, I have the Royals at four. I believe you did too. Yeah, so let's talk about them now. The Royals are a team that I think is not a great team. Like, not really even a good team. Yeah, I would agree. But if I had to point to some positives for them, like, I think they have some nice lineup pieces. I mean, Jorge Soler is a guy that hit, you know, over 45 bombs last year. I think set a a Royals single-season record, although a lot of teams had their home run single-season records that last year. Whit Merrifield's a good hitter. I mean, Hunter Dozier's got some decent power. Michael Franco's got some decent power. Alberto Mondesi, who's my player to watch, is, I think, an interesting Mm -hmm. bad piece. Jorge Soler is my player to watch. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I think they have some interesting players in their lineup, you know. But, you know, their pitching, I think, is pretty brutal. Uh, They have a lot of sort of four or five type guys, Danny Duffy, Jacob Eunice, uh, Brad Keller, Mike Montgomery, like, those aren't great pitchers, and those are sort of their 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 top four. So, I I think the pitching is really questionable. I don't think the lineup is great, but I think they have some interesting guys. Well, yeah, I, I basically have the exact same breakdown that you do, Sam. What I wrote for what to watch on them is really they got a lot of thump. <laughs> you know, Laura yeah. Solaire can really pound the ball. Whit Merrifield, Salvador Perez, Hunter Dozier, all guys who could easy hit 20, 25, even 30 home runs. And then Adalberto Manasi, he's your player to watch. And I do want to talk about him for a sec because I think he's really interesting. So in the minors, you know, he obviously swiped a ton of bases. He hit for middling power until 2017. But then he came up and in 79 games with the Royals in 2018, he had 14 bombs and sold 32 bases. Fantasy managers everywhere lost their marbles. They needed this guy on their squad. And the Royals kind of bought into what they saw. I mean, he sure had a 220 ISO. But and what I, I see of him... ISO, we haven't mentioned yet in the podcast. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. isolated slugging. It basically gives a measure of sort of just how much power a hitter has. And, 
and we might even cover it in the next episode. But It'll be definitely in the next few episodes. The 220 is maybe good. not an elite power hitter, but it's definitely a guy that has some power. Right, and for someone who's stealing 32 bases in 75 games, almost one a game, or almost uh, half a game, is that's pretty good. But what I see in that, Sam, if I'm a general manager and I'm identifying at Alberto Montesi for my team, just in the hitting, I see a under four walk rate and an over twenty six percent strikeout rate. Yeah, I mean it's it's not easy to uh, to be a successful major league hitter when you don't walk and you strike out. Right, you have to basically hit like thirty five home runs a year to do that at least. And if you're a speedy guy like Alberto Montesi, yeah. where a lot of your value is tied up in stolen bases and base running, you need to be on base. You cannot. Strike out over twenty six percent of the time and almost never walk. Yeah, it's 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 not a great profile, and we've sort of seen this profile go wrong in players before with guys like Billy Hamilton, who play a premium defensive position, have elite game changing right. speed, but really need to have some sort of that to have it pay off on the field. Uh, but you know, I think that is is sort of the story on the Royals, and sort of one thing. That's maybe interesting with them as a franchise is they won, they made the 2014 World Series loss, then won the 2015 World Series in a very unfair outcome. The Mets oh my gosh. Sam is just <laughs> putting this in to mention the 2015 World Series. As everybody knows. As everybody knows, yes. Everybody knows that the Royals had a very unfair outcome in 2015. <laughs> but, but something you've seen out of this organization is I think. You know, most people would agree that they were a bit lucky to be in both of those World Series. They were yeah. like a, an elite team in either of those those scenarios. And I think that they, as an organization, failed to properly evaluate themselves and sort of tried to double down on the pieces they already had. So, you know, they re-signed Alex Gordon, re-signed Salvador Perez, brought back Moustakis. And I, I think what this led to is sort of an inability to be ahead of the curve and start rebuilding. And instead, instead, they invested a lot of money as sort of a mid-market team in aging veterans, and they've gotten themselves in the position where they don't have a lot of t- talent either on their major league roster or in their sort of minor league system. Right, and so to kind of give an idea, between 1994 and when they first made the World Series in 2014, they only had two seasons over 500. Really? Okay. Wow. Only two seasons over 500, so there was no like clear progression and you know rise and downfall in the minor league system. Then in 2014 and 2015, they win almost 90 games and 95 games. Sneak in as a wild card team, lose the World Series. Sneak in as a wild card team, win the World Series, and then after that, they're like, "Oh, sorry, we're not going to break 500 again." And they win under 60 games in 2019 and 2018. So. Yes, Sam is being a homer here, but to his point, this kind of did come out of nowhere. They had the perfect blend of manager, players, and opportunity in 2015 and 14. They capitalized and made a World Series two times, gave a lot of hope to fans in Kansas City, and did so with some fun teams, even if my arch nemesis Eric Cosmer was on a few of those teams. And... It, I, I don't know. Just thinking about the twi- thinking about the 2015 Kansas City Royals just hitting bloop singles and and dribbler ground balls through the hole for hits. The entire World Series is just making me fume right now. 
I will say, and I want you viewers to know this is how much I care about you guys. I'm going to say this, and Sam's never going to speak to me again, so this may be the last podcast episode we do. I loved watching that team because I was like, yes, you guys suck, but you grind so hard every at-bat. You always find a way to put the ball in play, and you always find a way to get on base. All right, let's move to the Tigers. They're our fifth team. <laughs> All right, well, the Tigers are interesting, Sam, because uh, in contrast to what you mentioned about the Royals, which is that they have been very obstinate about revamping their organization, and they remain 17th overall in prospect rankings. The Tigers have decided that they are going to just fix their organization. And I think that's the right thing to do here. And for that reason, they're fifth in prospect rankings. And for a strength for them, I have that, you know, they have some major league players with some minor league talent. It's not a it's not a lost cause, at least in Detroit. Yeah, right I think now. the organization is moving in the right direction. Now, as far as their major league lineup goes, it, it's pretty much a disaster. The the there's not much talent on the roster, although as you said, they maybe have some major league caliber players. I think the the bullpen is a bit of a disaster. Uh, if I had one player watch a sort of a nice... I mean, the bullpen's a bit of a disaster. I don't want any of those guys pitching for me. Joe Jimenez is on a good team, pitches the sixth inning, and he's their closer. I, I, I was trying to be a bit chicken. Oh my god, their bullpen is a dumpster fire. I was trying to sugarcoat it a bit for all the, all the Detroit fans that we have of our podcast. But, you know, if there's one player to watch I have, I think Matthew Boyd is an interesting guy. Definitely. He's the type of guy who I think has sort of shown improvement every year of his career, and that led to really some nice strikeout rates last year where he struck out 11.5 batters per nine. He walked fewer than 2.5 batters per nine, and we talked about fielding independent pitching last year where this is a guy you look at, he had a 4.5 ERA, and you think he wasn't that good, but if you look at his expected FIP, it was only 3.88. And part of the reason for that is his home run per fly ball ratio was almost 18%. That's very high. So if he's a guy that can start to keep the ball in the park, use his good stuff to get strikeouts, continue to improve, I can see him as a guy who's maybe not like an all-star pitcher, but is sort of a bit below that level and can, would be a really nice you know, two or three on some other lineups, although, of course, he's the best pitcher in the time. Right, and Sam, I would say that I think that analysis makes sense, but if you look a little deeper and you look at the home run fly ball rate in his minor league career, he does have a couple other seasons with XFIPs under three, and where he has very high K per nines, low walk rates, I think they mirror his major league season last year very well. But in a lot of those seasons, he still had an 18%, a 12%, an 18%, a 13% two years in a row fly ball rate, or a home run to fly ball rate, I'm sorry, this is a guy who, because of the way he throws, he throws this kind of looping, you know, I would call it a slurve. I think he calls it a true slider. But, you know, it's somewhere between a curveball and a slider. And it kind of loops, and when it's on, it bites at the end. So it, it looks like it's looping, and then it looks like it accelerates down. It's a super nasty, very beautiful pitch to watch when it's on. But this is the type of pitch that when it's not, a guy is going to see it big. 
and he's going to hit it far, right? If it backs up or if he doesn't cut it really hard or if it doesn't bite, a hitter has a good chance of hitting it out of the park. So whereas this number is probably unsustainable for like a career or for like a four or five season stretch, I wouldn't be surprised if 50 to 75% of Matt Boyd's best career seasons still sport a home run to fly ball rate above 13%. Yeah, he could be the type of guy that, that's sort of prone to giving up runs. Right. Um, yeah, but I think I think that's sort of sort of it on the Tigers in that they, they don't have a ton to talk about at the major league level. They're a team that's they're an organization that's being built for the future with sort of great prospects like Casey Mize. Yeah, Casey Mize is a big guy they have there. Matt Manning, Riley Green, Isaac Padres, Will Castro. Uh, even a guy like Joey Wentz, who's only in double-A, but uh, is looking pretty good right now. So, you know, they've got some guys, but I will also just say in their defense, like, they went out and got some major league caliber players in the form of Jonathan Scope, in the form of C.J. Crone. Um, you know, they are going to play ball this year. They're not going to roll over and give games up. And yes, they suck. But Detroit, I respect you for carrying on that winning spirit. I respect you for getting trying to get back to a winning team. And I look forward to the day where the Tigers have, as they have in the past, carrying one of my all-time favorite players, Miguel Cabrera, look to compete. And I, I, I think maybe, you know, your window is four or five, six years from now. But when it comes, I'll be excited to see it. For now, I'm sorry, you're number five for both Sam and I in the AL Central. That'll do it for us here tonight. Uh, we've had a great time discussing the American League Central, defensive runs saved, and everything else with you. But let's do a quick over-under before we Oh, finish. you've still got over-unders for me. Yeah. All right. This is uh, just going to become a theme here where I forget we have to do over-unders. All right. We're going to go really fast because I know we've gone a little long, but Twins, 90 and a half. I'll take over. I'm also going over. White Sox, 84 and a half. Boy, tough, I'll take uh, over. I'm also going over. <laughs> Indians, 86. Uh, over. I'm going under. You know Aaron has given There's it over for enough. every team. There's not enough those. teams in the league for this many overs. Uh, Royals, 72. Under. I'm actually going to go under on that as well. Okay. Uh, Tigers, 55 and a half. Which it seems oh my way too God! Long. No, I have to take over fifty-five and yeah. a half. What I, the heck? I, I'm going to go over on that as well. I, don't, I, I just don't see. They were fifty-seven and fifty-eight in the last two years, and this team is the best team they've had in three years. So. Yeah. So, so yeah, Tigers were going over, but with that, I think that's going to end our AL Central preview. Thank you so much for tuning in again, guys. And remember, if you want to keep up with you know some of the promotions we're doing, what's coming out on the pod, you know, just what we're thinking. Make sure to follow us on our Twitter account at, at the Alonzo Bet. If you want to get in contact with us, either contact us there or contact us at thealonzobet at gmail.com. And please like and subscribe to the podcast. And with that, we're going to sign off tonight. I'm Sam. And I'm Aaron. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next week to hear me forget to do the over-unders for the NL East. That's all, folks. <laughs>